She said to me, Suzanne, she said, you always add some level of heart to what you do. She said, you're a spiritual business lady. And it stopped me in my tracks. And I looked at her, I said, there's something to that, but I can't put that on a business card. I said, there is something to that. And I sat with it and I sat with it. And what arose was, I may be a spiritual business lady who can't put that on a business card, but I can call myself a mindful entrepreneur and that I can put on a business card. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired, and please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so delighted to welcome Suzanne Jewell to the My Fourth Act podcast. Suzanne is a global expert on strategic marketing whose career and and life have increasingly fused her passion for business development with her passion for mindfulness. When working as a senior VP with Cisneros, Suzanne was part of the core team that launched DirecTV in Latin America. Suzanne is the former host of Mindful Mornings Miami, a weekly radio program where she interviewed luminaries such as, and what a name drop now, Elizabeth Gilbert, Marianne Williamson, Sharon Salzberg, Don McGalloway's Jr., Les Brown, and so, so many more. Suzanne is the founder of her own firm, The Mindful Entrepreneur, and she serves as Chief Experience Officer for South Florida's glorious Patch of Heaven sanctuary. Hello, Suzanne. Hello there, Achim. What a delight to be with you here today. Indeed. Because of life circumstances, this is our third attempt at getting together, and I just know it's been so worth the wait. I'm I'm always curious, and I like to ask every guest I'm going to ask you as well, because you've had and are having a pretty extraordinary life. When you were a a young girl, woman, teenager, and you were thinking about who you wanted to be when you grew up, Suzanne, what what were you thinking about? You know, it's a curious question you would ask because two things always appealed to me. And one of them as an 11-year-old girl was nature because I went to a nature school in Grand Rapids, Michigan for a whole year. And imagine Michigan in January and February and March and all those cold months. We spent time outdoors every day. And I always was called to that, no matter what was happening in my life. The other thing I also felt very called to when I entered college is I felt called to originally be in the Foreign Service. And I took classes like World in Crisis and uh, World Religions. And I was always very drawn to what my family said to me. You have such a big life in mind. And what's true now that I look back at my not quite sixth decade, but verging on the edge of that, is that I have had that big life. And so it's what I had in mind, and it's what unfolded. Very cool. When you mentioned foreign service, it's funny. I just got back from a week in Germany. 
I was groomed as a child to go into the Foreign Service. Everybody I knew was in it. I hung out with people last week in the Foreign Service. And however, from my lens right now, and maybe we ended it, it combines two things. There is the interest in travel and world cultures, learning about the world. And it's also a, to me, not inherently interesting job, you know, working for embassies, it's an administrative job that's not inherently creative. That doesn't mean we can't make it. So I, I celebrate the fact that you and I have all both discovered our own way of doing foreign service without formally being in the foreign service. <laughs> uh, now, I, I I want to spend most of our conversation talking about the amazing things you're doing right now and what's emerging in your life. But when somebody like you who has a, I'm going to call it a corporate branding marketing background, how did you get into that? How did that happen? You know, that comes from my core growing up too in Grand Rapids. I have to share that as a young girl, I had a father who was both an entrepreneur and the mayor of our small town, Grand Rapids, Michigan, mm -hmm. and a sister who was an entrepreneur. And so my first job was pressing bridal dresses in my sister's bridal store at 13 to make 10 bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. And I learned everything from you don't close the door and go home or turn off the lights until everything is in particular order. And in my teen years, I watched my sister grow her business from one store to five cities. I watched her expand from her bridal business to the tuxedo business. And she eventually created this chain called Brides World Tuxedo World lingerie world before Victoria's Secret was ever open. Yeah. And I was in the theater world and she hired me at 15 for a little business I had called Suzanne Jewel Productions to produce one show that she could take to those five cities, sat me down and gave me a budget and said, here's $5,000. This is what you need to pay for talent, rehearsal space, the staging, the lights, the sound, blah, blah, blah. And what's below this line will actually be what your profit is. And I would share with you that what it offered me and that place that I began to where it got me to, I've never taken a marketing class in my life, yeah. but my sister had instincts. She supported my instincts. I moved from that job to work with United Artists when they were first launching pay-per-view and near video on demand, which became video on demand ended up working for the movie studios because I had good instincts and there were results that came from it, which offered me the opportunity for the Cisneros to notice me at the National Association of Television Producers and Executives Conference, invited me to move to Miami, and my life catapulted onto this global stage. And it felt for me, because I will mention in there, I did spend two years in Spain going to school at the Universidad de Sevilla. So I should mention there was also that international yes, yes. schooling that happened in the midst of that. And it felt for me natural getting on that plane and landing in BA and then being in BA for three days and jumping on a plane and flying to Paris and then going from Paris to Tel Aviv and then bopping back to Miami. Somehow felt at that time rhythmically like me. And so that's how I got there. I got there very fast, high performer, perfectionist, type A, all of those things, a Virgo on top of it. And then I ended up, which is where the pivot began to happen for me, health challenges have been my missive of stop, wake up, and pay attention 
at every turn in my life. And that's when the pivot began to happen for me was in that instance. Before we do a deep dive into the pivot, uh, I love the word. I had a partner for a while in New York and he was a senior VP at Ogilvy, big, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, the reason they pay me the big money is because of my instincts. And I know, however, as a former theater director, if I hire an actor, I want her or him to have great instincts coupled with sustainable skill. Would, would you play a little bit for us from based on your expertise about the relationship between instinct and skill as you see it, Suzanne? Brilliant, because I will share this with you. I am, for some reason very left-brained, which is considered to be mathematically very calculus statistics. Like I'm that that was a part of me that was also, and my sister too, teaching me those basics of business. I'm investing this much. What's my return on my investment? So for most of my journey, I had this very intuitive capacity to drive the brand or the project in terms of my hands on the wheel but what my foot on the gas was, was always, am I able to look at this in a way that if I roll this out in 10 places, and this is what it is that the revenue return might be, is there a corollary to create balance between those two? Because what I also noted is that if I got a little too heavy on the creative side, just driving by the wheel, but not with my foot engaged, I noted that it was very airy. And my foot on the gas or on the ground, whichever way you want to call that, which was the numbers, what are we actually doing to root this or ground this? Now in the world I'm in, it's called grounding, but it was the same thing. It was the balance of the heart and the head. It was the balance of the numbers and the vision. And so for some reason, that in my way of showing up tended to be my capacity. And I always walked in and made the argument. Kudos to my dad when I was president of the debate team who wanted me to be a lawyer. He would go to the library. Yes, folks, this was before the internet. And he would take out books on a topic that I was having to present as a president of a debate team and get me to speak up for my opinion. And he had me do it rationally, not emotionally. So I think there's even a big core in the skill and the intuition that has to do with Understanding a capacity to make a logical, rational discussion or position that is also emotionally, intelligently, intuitively driven. So I'm quietly chuckling to myself because as you're explaining this so beautifully, where my mind is going, I really get how alpha Suzanne was <laughs> in terms of executing. And I say this with great respect and with being impressed by that energy that some people don't have, and you clearly had it in oodles and oodles of it. Mm -hmm. What I heard you say before when you talked about the pivot is that your body started talking to you. And yeah. it happens to many people, and some people listen faster, and some people take longer to listen. How did your body talk to you? And how did you know, like, excuse my English, like, shit, I better pay attention. Fascinating question. So I had pivoted from the TV business and, as you said, opened up my own agency, living in Miami, 
Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Alive and Thrive Ethiopia was my client. So think Addis Ababa, Africa, Ethiopia. And my best friend who happened to be my mom living in Grand Rapids, Michigan, passing away of cancer. So my commute, which was not unusual for me, but came a time where I was living in Miami, working in Africa, caring for 1,500 miles away, if it was from Miami, 1,500 miles away, my best friend passing. And that dance of that commute occurred for 15 months. And when I escorted her, which I also went and got trained in hospice as a hospice volunteer, so I took that role very seriously. And I'd also been in the prayer chaplaincy program for some time at the at the spiritual institution that I was a part of. And as that call toward the end of her life was arising, my health began to pay the price. And what occurred for me is that I started to get panic attacks. I started to actually have what would be the equivalent now of what many people are realizing in the trauma world is PTSD that has nothing to do with being in Afghanistan or Iraq. It's the trauma of life. And once she passed, all of that nervous system stuff in my body showed up as a circadian rhythm disruption. So I started sleeping during the day and I was awake at night also because my body had been living across time zones in the pond and hours in the continent. And it got completely disrupted at the level of cortisol. So my head of that type A started to try to understand what is cortisol? Why am I having these problems? Why is my heart racing? My spiritual side started to call me to walk in parks, to actually sit in green spaces. And what started to occur intuitively where the instinct started to arise is the more time I spent outside, the more I started to get rhythmically in alignment. And then I started to make the decision to take this practice of meditation very seriously. And I knocked on a few doors from the ancient Hindu practices to more modern new age practices with Eckhart Tolle. And I landed in the Buddhist realm and the mindfulness space. And it was all because it was a health wake up call that pivoted, turned my heart, inclined my eyes and focused my attention. Oh, this is the path. And I heard it not as anything loud. This is really important to mention. The listening for me was the equivalent of hearing two Legos click together. It's a subtle sound. It's not loud, but when you hear it, you know it. As I listen to you, it sounds like a a beautiful, almost organic awakening. You explored and you paid attention to what was coming up. I recognize a lot of me and you as you're describing the the triangular travel dance. I've, I've been there, done that. I know it's not sustainable. Yeah. I'm sure we have many listeners who recognize themselves in it. And I don't want to impose an answer on you, but part of mindfulness, I believe, is the ability to slow down and have a slower life. And I also know that sounds really good. It's not always easy to execute when when we want to commit to stuff. People want to hire us. I think we're cool. You know, we want to please people. All those things. Like the, how did you learn to juggle the dance between 
making commitments that you want to honor and slowing at the same time. You know, I started, it's nothing that occurred for me overnight as I now especially look back. My mom passed in 2014. So we're eking up on almost 10 years. And the work I did with the Gates Foundation, which was almost four years of my journey, was one of my realizing I wanted to, and this is a mindfulness term, incline my heart. So it means that the eye of the heart, what direction are you turning in? I wanted to incline my heart toward work that had more meaning. And so that was one of the first steps was let me take work that isn't just tied to the capacity that I have for launching global brands, which I was extremely skilled at doing. And I was very capable of navigating whether it was the Ethiopian Herald or the BBC World or, you know, uh, something at the global level of communications. How did I start to turn my heart and incline my heart toward things that I believed mattered? And that was one of the first steps I took was let me do work in that direction. And then as my own inner journey and the voice inside me and my writing, especially my writing, writing for me is as contemplative a practice as meditation is. Because something between my heart and my hand and the paper births something that needs to come to the light. In Spanish, when you give birth to something, you dar a la luz. You give to the light. In English, you don't. You give birth. And they're two very different actions. And so my journaling practice became a big part of that. And as I then realized, I was starting to curate who I wanted to work with. And in that curation process, people knocked on my door like the First World Happiness Summit. And they were a client and they were trying to launch this project and they wanted me to be the chief mindfulness officer. And so I stepped into that space for about nine months, launched it, built a very successful experience. And that was right when the Mindful Mornings Miami radio show opportunity came and right in the vector do I want to do a radio show that I've never done before, but something is calling me? Or do I want to do this? Because it was a moment of I can't really do both. And I continued to make brave decisions to follow the road less traveled because my heart went, I want to have these conversations. I want to have these discussions with people like Sharon Salzberg. Two days after the Parkland shooting in Florida, I had her on the air. I want to have these conversations with Deepak Chopra about the nature of consciousness. So my own journey guided me and I took truthfully brave choices that anyone else in the room might've been, but wait a minute, they offered you a piece of the business and this is uncharted territory. But my heart said, go the uncharted way, go where no one else has gone in terms of what it is that's calling in you. So I would share with you that the direction of my heart kept calling me and I had to have the courage to keep listening. And then I will also share that what I did is I changed the way I lived. I changed the necessity for when I was in the global television business of owning a four bedroom, four bath house with a pool on Palm Island, just off of South beach, which required that I make a certain amount of money. And that required, I drive a certain kind of car and that required and required and all of that stuff. And as I moved through these lenses of doing things for more meaning, some of the stuff that I used to value or merit started to not mean much to me, including the kind of car I drove, which was stunning (laughs) considering I'm a Michigan girl who literally had four convertibles growing up in high school. So those things shed 
their attachment and their meaning and their value in that inquiry of what matters most. And it started to shift. And I kept having the courage to turn in that direction and and trusted and surrendered. And it doesn't really matter to me whether or not you call it God or or the divine or love or intelligence or the great spirit kind of doesn't matter to me. You know, it goes by a thousand names or it might remain nameless, but what it was, I listened to and it lived inside my heart and things showed up when I listened. You do such a beautiful job of describing of how you have been guided. Your current formal business name before we get to Patch of Heaven is the Mindful Entrepreneur. Did you ever think like, shoot, will people hire somebody who says she's a mindful entrepreneur or she wants <laughs> me to be a mindful entrepreneur? Easy to just say entrepreneur success coach, but you put in the word mindful. I'm sure you contemplated as a marketing branding person the implication of calling your business mindful entrepreneur. Can we play with that language and how you arrived at it a little bit? Oh, Ahim, you're going to just, you could see the grin on my face. You're going to just crack up when I tell you the backstory on the title. And also the logo has half a brain attached to it. So there's the brainiac side of it. That's Uh the left brain. That's the alpha. There's the brain. But what I would share with you is the client that I had from Ethiopia who had become Dear friends, so part of it was the Gates office in Seattle and then the Gates office in D.C. And then the folks in in Addis, they all became very dear friends. And one of them sat me down because she saw me through this four years unfolding through this journey. And I was working with people from UC Davis and the National Institutes of Health and creating these best practice conferences, even though that's not my background. That's how I was doing world you know, the question of world and crisis or world relations, foreign service, that's how I was showing up. She said to me, Suzanne, she said, you always add some level of heart to what you do. She said, you're a spiritual business lady. And it stopped me in my tracks. And I looked at her, I said, there's something to that, but I can't put that on a business card. I said, there is something to that. And I sat with it and I sat with it. And what arose was, I may be a spiritual business lady who can't put that on a business card, but I can call myself a mindful entrepreneur, and that I can put on a business card. Because it meant I was present, and it wasn't quite calling myself the heartful entrepreneur. An entrepreneur at its root in the French, entrepreneur, means somebody who is going to take a great risk with a pretty great assurance they're going to fail and decides to take the risk anyway. Jump off the cliff expecting that your wings are going to appear. And I realized that's me. And so it was one of those moments when I decided to lean into that. And then I also made the commitment to go to Berkeley and get a two-year mindfulness meditation certification and training at the Greater Good Science Center. Took it very seriously. Even lived for 18 months at a Buddhist center. So I made a very committed path to this just short of becoming a Buddhist nun. And I realized, you know what? If I'm going to be asking people to do the radical act of paying attention on purpose in the moment, non-judgmentally and with curiosity, which is what it means to be mindful, then I need to have a radical way to position what it is that I do and who I am. And I decided to take that risk. So it really means, aka, 
spiritual business lady, even though it says my entrepreneur. <laughs> A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Let's talk about, I'm beginning to see how lots of pieces fit together. Just this year, you started to work with a place in Southern Florida called Patch of Heaven Sanctuary. I would imagine anybody who doesn't know what it is, just by hearing the name Mm -hmm. Patch of Heaven Sanctuary, you just go, can I go visit, please? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, (laughs) In the spirit of being guided or if we want to be metaphysical by putting out one thing, the universe and something else back and things happen. I also adore your title, chief experience officer. So there are lots of wonderful dots connected with patch of heaven. Would you kindly tell us how you got to patch of heaven or how patch of heaven found you? Beautiful question. What it means and looks like to be a chief experience officer. Yes, I I will share this with you. So I mentioned a little tiny droplet in there about I took residence at a Buddhist center during COVID, and that was an 18-month experience. My teacher was a female lama, which is highly unusual in the Buddhist tradition. I took my vows of renunciation, except for shaving my hair with two female lamas. And in the midst of that experience, I had the most incredibly privileged immensely blessed opportunity to live in a boathouse on the grounds of a sacred center next to a river and paddled every day on the little river with manatees. This is literally like how magical can it be? And in the backyard was a stupa garden. And stupas are these huge statuary pieces that look like what would have been the the shawl or the robe of the Buddha with his uh, alms bowl on top and then his walking cane in it. And they mark out the 10 directions, north, south, east, west, northeast, southeast, southeast, southwest, and then the earth and the sky. There is a path that as part of your practice, you daily walk around it. And I would get up every day at about 4.30 or quarter to five, and I would do what's called my circumambulation practice. I also grew a garden there. And when I had friends come to visit, because it doesn't mean you don't engage in the world, but it means you engage in the world differently. I would take them around the walk and I would grab a piece of broccoli from my garden or cherry tomato and some of my lettuce and I'd hand them a mini salad. And then I'd bring them by part of the stupa that had incense. And what started to unfold for me is I'm getting people to pay attention by using their senses. And in my head, I went, what if these little 6,000 square feet kind of spaces could be in parks so that we're not going to nature to recreate? We're not going to nature to sweat. We're not going to nature to play basketball or tennis. We're actually going to nature to wake up and experience nature as nature. So what unfolded and arose in these paddling on the path of the kayak 
was this idea of what if I actually created a mindful meditation park? And what if it had a way to use your sight, your smell, your scent, your sound, touch, and taste? And before you knew it, I had this thing in my mind called a mindful park, a mindful pocket park. And I started searching around to see if I could get the county or a city or a village to help me create this because I also knew people were getting more anxiety. They were more disconnected from themselves and from others. And we were sitting in a time where Mother Earth and Gaia and nature are all screaming at us to wake up and pay attention to the crisis that's occurring. So I bravely pitched to the village of El Portal because they were looking to actually activate a small space. And I thought, you know, nothing better than to try the proof of concept, see if they say yes. I then also tried to apply for a grant. I was up against the World Wildlife Federation and some large babies, and we didn't win. But it opened a conversation for me with the county parks department, and they gave me land, but they said the following. You need to find someone who is horticulturally capable of planting and maintaining this land. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine who was a psychologist had gone to Patch of Heaven Sanctuary, knew of this idea, sent me the image and said, Suzanne, I think these people are perfect for what you're doing. I never heard of them before. Lived in Miami 26 years. Didn't know how to find them. Reached out to a friend and said, do you know anybody there? And before you know it, 10 minutes later, the founder was on the phone with my friend introducing himself to me. This was July of last year. Mm -hmm. Showed up and pitched them on the Mindful Pocket Park. And they said, we don't want to build anything in Miami. We have 20 acres down here. Come to Homestead. I was like, I live at the Buddhist Center. I paddle on the kayak every day. Why would I come to Homestead? Why would I ever leave and move to an agricultural area? We danced for six months. And they kept saying, come to Homestead. And I kept saying, I don't know if that's what I want to do. In the seventh month, they said to me, if you find a partner to help us co-fund the project, why not come to Patch of Heaven and build the Mindful Pocket Park here? So they dangled my dream in front of my face. I said, yes. I became the chief experience officer because my role is to activate reconnecting humans to nature, one mindful walk, one tree, one butterfly, and one breath at a time. And in that process, my left brain type A, very alpha person went to the world I know in the business realm. And the Greater Miami Chamber of Commerce offers a program with Leadership Miami where they adopt four nonprofits to help them execute a project. I entered into that program. We got supported and the Mindful Pocket Park and 12 35 to 40-year-old young people for 100 days helped us raise money. We did a plant-a-thon with 77 people. And there now is, instead of 6,000, a 10,000, it's almost a half an acre now, a five-sensory station mindful pocket park being completed in the next six months at Patch of Heaven Sanctuary. So that's how it all came together. And we're now on the verge of launching, because part of what I now do is teach mindful leadership, mindfulness-based resilience training, and it's all in the context of using nature as the teacher and as the living learning laboratory and campus, and it's based on a 20-minute piece of research that came out of University of Michigan during COVID that 20 minutes in nature will reduce your levels of cortisol. So it's still that same dance of a little bit of science and a lot of spirituality. 
and mostly a lot of practicality of why should you take the nature pill every day? I just want to deconstruct for a moment the, the marvelous story you told us through my lens. You know, and yes. I'm also a serial entrepreneur like you. But what really struck me, and I'm deconstructing it for our listeners, which is what I find so remarkable about you, instincts are taking you in a certain direction. You don't necessarily know how it's going to unfold but gosh darn it, you're willing to explore and and go in there. And and I, I'm a firm believer the universe tells us whether it's supposed to happen or not. And it's so clear that Patch of Heaven was supposed to happen. I mean, as I'm listening to your story, I happen to know, and would you elaborate on this as well? You already told us about <laughs> when you lived on Palm Island. I believe you live down the street from Patch of Heaven now. Could you uh, just describe <laughs> that to us? Uh, in, in the spirit of things coming full circle. I love it. You, oh, Ahim, this is just a delight. So how funny that I was like, why would I leave? That's and right. so what happened literally on the day that I said yes, again, huge alignment. I had been studying with a Vietnamese Buddhist teacher. Some people may have heard of him before, Thich Nhat Hanh, Thai. Mm-hmm. Uh, he passed away on January 22nd, which was the day I said yes to Patch. On that very day, he also is the one who's created what's called engaged Buddhism, which is all about earth activism and and where you actually create relationship with the earth and with nature and trees and all of the world outside of us. Few people um, outside the realm know that the Buddha woke up under a tree. He taught in a forest and he died under a tree. So it's a very earth-based set of, of tools of how to be in the world. But so... What I do know occurred was I went home and I just on a a fluke, I said, you know, I wonder what it would be like to live down there. And so I threw in one of those little Zillow, you know, Mm -hmm. searches and up pops. We're looking for a particular person. This was the description. Um, We own a private equestrian ranch and we have a two bedroom, one bath groundkeeper's cottage. And this person will have to fit in with the lifestyle that we're creating. Don't call after 7 p.m. at night and don't call before 11 a.m. in the morning. And I looked at it and I was like, what is this? And I didn't even know the map very well, but I'm kind of trying to calculate this is on one road and this is on another road. And I could not wait. My joy was so curious. I called them outside of the hours of the window they asked for, spoke to them, and they said, listen, we sold our home in a very, very elegant part of Miami, right next door to Brickell in the roads. They said, we have three children. There are 27 horse stalls on this ranch. We have seven horses and we are recalibrating our kids not to live the fast, flashy Miami lifestyle. And we're looking for someone who would be part of that. And it's going to have to be somebody pretty particular. And I explained to them what I was doing. They said, can you come down tomorrow. So this was all on the very same day, 122-22. And I showed up on their doorstep the next day. And by the end of the day, after they introduced me to the horses, the kids, the dogs, the pigs, there were two baby pigs at the time. They said, we think we'd like to have you be part of what we're building. And one of them is a finance expert and the other one is in real estate. So they're not at all necessarily in the, in the, shall we say, spiritual realm or anything like that. They're business people, but they made a conscious choice that they wanted to live a more agricultural lifestyle. And they basically invited me to to be part of that experience. So I now live 
four minutes and 30 seconds away from the front door. <laughs> this morning, Ahim, I took out five of the horses because I'm now learning to do mindful equine experience. And our mama pig, her name is Gretel. Her husband is Hansel. And Gretel is about to give birth in the next two days. So that's how I live now. And this is not at all Palm Island. And I am so happy. And I'm sitting here with my boots on covered in mud. I hope our listeners take this wonderful journey described as a story of of how life can evolve in completely unexpected ways if we let it. And at the same time, you were an active participant in it. So you were not passive. That was part of it. I know we could be listening to you going, oh, it's just life is all fun and games for Suzanne Jewell. But I know just in, in the last few weeks, you lost two animals who were very dear to you. So part of joy and expansion, it comes with loss and grieving and all of those things. Would you talk to us about what it was like for you to say goodbye to two animals you loved and perhaps also what you, again, discovered or rediscovered about yourself and life in the process? I mean, thank you for bringing that level of groundedness to this conversation. I'm appreciative of that because, and it's actually one of the reasons I turned toward toward Buddhism in a world that's often filled with toxic positivity. And one of the lessons that framed my journey, and then I'll share with you what I learned, something that attracted me about Buddhism is that it talks about the fact that there are 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows in every life. There's pain and pleasure, and there is fame and ill repute. And all of that is, is part of this journey. And part of what my practice has offered me inner courage to do is to let my heart be broken open, to not try to run from it, to not try to numb. Most of our world is built on run and numb. We don't sit and stay. And in this case, staying present with a dying pet, one happened from one day to the next with feline leukemia. We didn't even know he was ill and there was no choice because his blood was like water. And that was the pet that passed on the 1st of November, a beautiful tuxedo cat named Tom. And my second kitty was Sweet Pea, a blue Russian who went from a period of days from what we thought was a respiratory infection to a bladder tumor. And the vet saying I would put her to sleep now. And I made again an instinctual conscious choice right before Thanksgiving. And I said, I'm spending the last day of her life with her on Thanksgiving outdoors in front of the paddocks on the grass. And I watched her teach me something. And it was as if she was reminding me why I needed to do the mindful pocket park. She put her nose in the air and smelled the smells. She put her face and her fur in the breeze and felt the wind. Her little body, she just let that little body that was going to be passing, and it was already in the process of that because she was barely eating, stretch all across the grass and just oozed right into the earth. And she just looked up at me. And all we did, and I brushed her and brushed her for hours. And what she taught me was, stop. Just stop. None of the rest, even as gorgeous as what I do at Patch is, none of the rest of this in the moment of the few breaths that she had left. You know, we breathe 22,000 times a day. She had until Friday afternoon at three, and this was Thanksgiving day 
So you could count the breaths. How often, whether it's something that's passing, because we're all in the process of passing, like we're all dying right now as much as we're living too. How often do we stop and savor that breath? And when we do, one of the most stunning things she taught me was, she's alive right now. This is the moment to cherish. Oh, this is what it's like to cherish. And then soft tears would come, which was my heart being aware that this moment also was impermanent. And just like her, my life is impermanent. And so in this tradition, one of the most gorgeous things is use the nearness of death to wake your ass up. Forgive my French. I hope you don't have to bleep me to what's important in life. And there were three things that came from sitting with her because I was journaling while I was with her. One point she just fell asleep, put one of her little paws in my hand. And I literally let that happen while I was writing. And it was to what am I paying attention? To whom am I giving the precious gift of my attention? Because it's like love. Attention is like love. And the third question was, do either of these enhance why I am still here on earth? And when I asked myself a few things I had going on and I saw the third clarifying question, I was like, no, this doesn't enhance why I'm still here on earth. And all of a sudden it's a sword of clarity. Well, then put it down and get to what matters. Because each one of us never has a guarantee that we're going to take those 22,000 breaths that day. We don't know. You know, and one of the health challenges I didn't mention in the midst of this turns out that I have a two millimeter unruptured aneurysm in the back of my brain that was part of the wake-up call of the circadian disruption that I found out about and a rare underlying disease, a pair of them. One's called fibromuscular dysplasia. The other one is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And it basically means the collagen in my body doesn't create proper connective tissue and so I'm hyper flexible, but I'm not very strong. And what I have to do now is pace myself. And it's also forced me to choose wisely. Where am I going to place that energy, my attention? And then that third question with her alive was, does it enhance why I'm still here on earth? That's such a beautiful way to, for now, end our conversation. I can't imagine that our listeners don't aren't curious about everything that you're engaged in. Where would you like to direct them if they want to learn about Mindful Entrepreneur, if you want to learn about Patch of Heaven? Where can they find you, Suzanne? The best spot, probably. I'm most active on LinkedIn. So just my name, Suzanne Jewell on LinkedIn. And I'm really diligent about responding there. That kind of tends to be the one place I do engage. I find those conversations to be energizing. And then the other spot would be go to the Patch of Heaven website. And under a link that says retreats, you'll actually find a little more background about me. You'll find uh, my contact information. And, you know, we're open and available for doing individual kinds of experiences. And in 2023, Mindful Pocket Park is actually going to take a conversion into a program called the Mindful Training Institute, Mindful Nature Institute. And what we'd love to do is have anyone join us on that journey because we're going to create something that doesn't exist, which is literally helping humans not only heal, but we're going to do it at the speed of nature. 
Beautiful, Suzanne. Thank you so much for the gift of this conversation. And uh, bye for now. Thank you so much, Ahim. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.